0: Good morning, everyone. If you would please be turning open to Revelation chapter 20. This is maybe a chapter that you have been waiting a long time to get some direction on. I just want you to know I come offering no conclusions. On this chapter, the millennial reign of Christ, I offer no conclusions. I have an opinion, no conclusions. So we'll see as we go through it. If you would follow along as as we read through God's word. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Lord, as we continue to journey through your word, uh, as you describe the end of time and the culmination of your kingdom on the earth, God, we ask that we would be rightfully affected by your love and compassion for the lost, that we would be marked by mercy, we'd be marked by compassion, just as you are. So Lord, give us understanding, give us hope through our understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. This chapter is one that carries a lot of Confusion. And we need to be careful how we approach it because uh, the millennial reign of Christ, his thousand years that's being described here, is a secondary issue within the Christian community. Uh, just past Wednesday morning, the men's training, we went through Romans. What chapter was that in Romans? Somewhere in Romans. The end of the book. Because, yeah, the chapter study that we have is different than the chapter of Romans. That's why I was confused. Uh, But we went over uh, primary and secondary issues within the body of Christ and how things are elevated from things that should not be divisive. We elevate them to this place of, no, this is the only way to do this in Christianity. And it causes division and consternation in people. We don't want this to have that effect. We don't want this to stir up conflict or strife. Now, I have been, within this study, I have been using seven commentaries in my preparation for my sermons. They don't all agree on this chapter. These are really smart men and women, really smart. And they don't agree. And so we have to be able to approach this, understanding what Paul encouraged the Corinthians with in 1 Corinthians 13. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Remember, this is the chapter about love. And so even as we approach this chapter, the overarching, compelling vision and mission for the church is to love one another. Because we recognize we don't see everything. We don't have all the knowledge. We don't have everything. We, we see a little dimly. Now, while this chapter may raise a lot of questions, the bottom line is that we need to see what John saw and recorded for us to see. Here's the thing. Jesus reigns on his throne. Jesus reigns on his throne. And there is enough in this chapter that all believers can agree on and rejoice in. Jesus reigns, the devil is defeated, and the redeemed reign with Christ. Oh, man, that's so cool. And the differences arise, not with the promises that are given, the differences arise in terms of timing. When do these things take place and how do they take place? And we will hold the promises very tightly, but we will hold the timing loosely. We don't hold, we we don't treat the timing as, no, 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 this is the way it's going to happen. Now, I put some graphics in your notes to help understand there's three main ways of considering the thousand-year reign of Jesus uh, on the earth. The, the first one that you have there is a pre-millennialist um, understanding of the timing of how these events play out. We have the first coming, then the church age. Jesus comes back. That's the rapture. He brings his people up to him. Satan is bound at that time. Then there's a literal thousand-year period that happens before Satan is released, and then a new creation is inaugurated. Then there is a, an understanding that is a post-millennialist perspective. And this is where the Jesus comes and we, we have a church age the thousand years is not a figurative or it's not a literal thousand years it's a figurative thousand years at some point within the church age Satan is bound and then released but in a post millennial uh, conception they they look at the this perspective looks at the the power of the gospel to keep going on the earth and filling the earth Now there are there are again people that I have quoted a lot in my preaching over the years who hold a post-millennial perspective. A lot have a pre-millennial perspective. And here is another one called an ah millennial perspective. The, in the Greek ah means no, it negates the millennial. That's not really what's going on. Think of it more as it's already happening. It's inaugurated millennialism where this Uh, teaching or perspective, comes from Satan was bound when Jesus rose from the dead. That's when the binding started. It's not a literal thousand years. It's a figurative thousand years that lasts all along the church age. And when Jesus comes back for his second coming, everything ends. And Satan is released right before that for the battle. The battle, we're going to look at the battle never happens because he thinks he can do something and he doesn't do it because Jesus... Rules, And then we have the new heaven and the new earth, which we'll get in chapter 21 and 22. Now, again, notice the agreement. Jesus will come again in bodily resurrected form to consummate his kingdom on a new earth. And we rejoice, we rejoice in these truths and we worship God for these truths. Now, ultimately, we are all pan millennialists. It's all going to pan out in the end so we can agree on that. God has it. Jesus knows what's going on, and it will be exactly as he said. As we look into chapter 20, uh, I think it would be helpful for us because we don't want to be here all afternoon. Uh, It's helpful for us to choose one framework to work with as we interpret chapter 20. Uh, Now, for me, uh, I think the amillennial perspective helps me make sense of the events described here in this chapter, but along, alongside of Jesus' descriptions of his return in the Gospels and in the New Testament passages about his return. Now, I, I think the amillennial perspective is also consistent with how to interpret numbers and symbols in the entirety of the book of Revelation. Uh, but this should not alarm you. If you're now concerned about my salvation... Because I've said this, we need to have more conversations. Because if we think we can approach this as, (laughs) we got it, we know what's happening, we're just looking, then you really haven't studied it enough. I I can read three different perspectives and be persuaded in all three. I can. Now, for the past, well, 20 years ago, uh, I was a premillennialist. And I, I defended that position. So I can easily... Take that position and defend it again because I studied it and I thought I was convinced and then got a hold of some other perspectives and went, wait a minute. Hmm. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? And questions arise. But we hold, again, we hold this loosely. This is not something that we, uh, it's not something we force as a part of our fellowship within the family of God. Now, I, I see the benefit of each of the perspectives as a framework, framework but I also know that each one has drawbacks. Uh, pre, a pre-millennialist perspective can oftentimes, I find, be too pessimistic, where it just looks at the world and goes, uh-huh, hell in a handbasket, yep. And so that it, it, these, these are the faults of our own minds. A, a post-millennial perspective and framework can be too soft on suffering. Because as they look toward the kingdom, advancing in the gospel proclamation, having more and more power, the, the teaching is that heaven will come in its power and be more and more on the earth. And that will it will not jumpstart, but that's the wrong word, but it will it will be the beginnings of, of the reformation and refining of the earth for God's new earth. Now, an amillennial perspective uh, can lend itself to lack of, and overlook the urgency and the immediacy of Christ's return. So there, there are there are benefits and drawbacks to each one. And with uh, there were two commentaries I read this week that didn't agree with any th- all any three of these. It's kind of like a combination. But one guy said, "Look, I'm not, I'm just not satisfied with any of these." And they looked. They had reasons for that, and they were compelling. But with with uh, the, the all these differences in mind, uh, but I think. Using an amillennial perspective will help us unpack the passage together. In the first three verses, we see that Satan is bound. Uh, again, we see that Jesus is in control. The angel, and, and in the book of Revelation, or the beginning of the book, in the letters, he says, He holds, when he, when he reveals Himself to the churches, He holds the keys to death and Hades. So Jesus is in control. He holds the keys. He's not given the keys over. And He holds a chain on which Satan is bound. His abilities are bound by by God. He can't do anything apart from God's okay. And the devil is bound for a thousand years. The millennium is, is from two Greek words that mean a thousand years. If Jesus' millennial reign, if we're thinking it began at his resurrection, then Satan has been bound for the entire church age. What do we make of that? What do we think of his binding? How does he still work? In Mark 3... Uh, when uh, Pharisees and leaders came to Jesus and said, you cast out demons by Beelzebub. It was a name for Satan that they used. And you do his work. And that's when Jesus said, whoa, 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 careful in how you ascribe his work because uh, you may not be forgiven. You can't take God's work and the power of God releasing people from the bondage of sin and demonic activity as something God does. And he says, how can a house divided can't do that? Can't stand. But then he comes to this. He says, no one can enter a man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. I think Jesus was telling everyone what he would be doing at his resurrection. Remember, he gave his disciples authority. And what were they, they were casting out demons. All of that, that activity that was happening was beginning in his ministry. But I think he was bound when Jesus rose from the dead. And Satan, we're told, is in a prison. It doesn't mean he stopped working. Just because it's sealed doesn't mean he's muzzled. Just because it's been shut over doesn't mean he doesn't have rule and reign. It has always been a mystery to me how uh, mob bosses and gang-affiliated hierarchies, they're in jail and they still operate with all the authority as if they weren't in jail. Satan does the same thing. He still has an authority and he still has his minions doing his treachery. And John sees that this binding in the pit uh, was to... He said, so he would not deceive the nations. What we see also in Second Corinthians 4, I believe, is that God, uh, Satan rather, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see and understand the glory of Jesus. I think he still does that in his activity from the pit that he is in. But he says that, that Satan is sealed so he cannot deceive the nations. Satan tried to get, he did, he he gathered the nations to kill Jesus, the first go-round. And he will gather the nations again to do what? To try to kill Jesus because he's so schizophrenic, he still thinks he can win. He still thinks he can take out the offspring of the woman. And so he will be released for a time. I think that release is to gather the nations again, Gog and Magog. He gathers the nations again to try to kill Jesus because he knows, all right, I'm I'm getting out. And so not, I need to try to kill Jesus again. He, he hates, remember, he is waiting. He is that dragon waiting to devour the offspring of the woman and he will take it out on us as the church. He has already deceived the nations to crucify Jesus. And when he's released, I believe he will gather the nations, deceiving them, gather them together at Armageddon, because he still thinks he can win. But he can't win. In the next paragraph, verses 4 through 6, we see that the redeemed have already won. Because the redeemed reign with Christ. And I I love this. He saw, look at verse 4, then I saw thrones. All the other throne room experiences have been for the 24 elders. They've been on thrones, but now there's thrones. And this is many, many more thrones. And the redeemed are the ones who sit on those thrones. The martyrs are vindicated and the faithful have been rewarded. And then he says, this is the first resurrection. I think this points to salvation, to regeneration. That moment in our lives when the Holy Spirit comes and makes us alive with Christ. I think this, he's describing the first resurrection. We are resurrected inside. Our souls come alive. Our spirit is made to be one with Christ. In Ephesians 2, I think Paul is alluding to this first resurrection, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved. And then look in verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's present Active. We, we are presently, right now, as the redeemed, seated with Christ. That's why when I look at our premillennial perspective, I don't see that it confuses me. It confuses me that how do we reign now and reign then? So we, well, they say, well, we're reigning spiritually, we'll reign physically with him on the earth. I'm also confused by how in a millennial reign a thousand years you still have the glory of Jesus and we, we would be ruling and reigning with him, but you still have unbelievers around who are still sinning. It confuses me. It confuses me. That's, all, that's why I think the um, millennial helps me make sense of, all right, no, we are seated with him. When we were born again, regenerated by the Spirit, we reign now forever with him. Our reign has already started, and there will be a physical reign when he comes back. I do think there is a physical reign that we, that we will have with him. But we reign now, and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ. And I also see Romans 5, 17 as a, a, a now component of this reigning. For if because of one man's trespass de- death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, there also is a reference to a second death. We have a first resurrection and a second death. What would that be? I think it's the ultimate judgment that we've been looking at in the previous chapters of Revelation. There's a judgment, an ultimate judgment that's coming. It's at the end of this chapter with, with the great white throne. There is a judgment that is coming, but we, as God's redeemed, we don't have to fear that judgment because he has saved us. And what are we doing on those thrones? Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. I think that's the lake of fire death. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. I think this is now component as well. We are reigning with him during his inaugurated reign that happened at his resurrection. And we are reigning as priests. In the Old Testament, you see all the ceremonial stuff with priests. But we can look back and Ed Welch has a book called Created to Draw Near, where he takes all the way through scripture and how God's design for his creation for people is to be his priests. And he explains it this way. God's intent for humanity has been that we would live in his house and receive his divine hospitality. This is the mission of priests. Priests are near God. In his royal residence, which he declares is also our own, we are known. Unashamed, at peace with each other, dressed in garments he himself tailored, ushered into a feast and joined to him in communion that leaves us searching for words to describe. Kerr was giving us an example of that a second ago. How do we describe this gratitude? This priestly identity is a premier way of understanding God's people. God wants us as priests. And now we are priestly. We are a royal priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're a royal priesthood. We are mediating, not in a, a sacrificial way like Jesus did. We are mediating God's presence to the world. We are experiencing his presence and we are living in ways that highlight. And that's the light that shines. We are shining with God's presence in a lost, dark, broken and hurting world. We are his priests. We are near him. And other people come near us so they can get a, a reality of the peace and the comfort and the glory of being in God's presence through Christ. So we we have Satan bound, we have the, the redeemed that are reigning, and then we have verses 10 through 7 through 10 that evil is finally ended. Man, can't wait for this. Again, Satan will try to get the nations together to kill Jesus. As he returns on a white horse, and this is described as Gog and Magog, this is pulled from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, it's, it's a little confusing when you look into the, the, the situation from Ezekiel 38 and 39 because Gog was a small, insignificant nation. Or he, Gog was the leader of a small, insignificant nation named Lydia. It's like, why would he get so much press? and Gog was from the land of Magog and was able to ally himself to get allies with other nations that were larger than he was and in, in Ezekiel 38 it's seven nations it's completeness and they gathers them from all over the world i don't think in in a lot of teaching uh Gog Russia is defined uh, correlated with Gog because of where he rules and how it's from the north. But we see with Gog that he gathers everybody. But here, is, it's kind of like that little horn that we looked at in chapter 12. The little horn comes up and spouts blasphemous names. It's like, who's this little dude thinking him something? Like the little Napoleon complex showing itself. Gog's the same thing. But he represents pride. He represents the pride of leaders, thinking that they can get together and form these compromises in order to take out God, but they can't, so they take out God's people. Ian Duguid, in his uh, reference and understanding of of Ezekiel 38, he said that Gog is used to represent a fear-inducing figure of cosmic proportions. And we see those people rise up in life. He's the representation of proud leaders who team together. And the nations assemble, but remember, there is never a fight. Fire comes down and consumes them. So they think they're coming together and fighting. But fire comes down when Jesus is there and he says, no, I've already won. The battle's already won. Now when fire coming down, I I wonder... If that's at the same time that the clouds are rolled back and Jesus shows up on the white horse. I don't know, I'll let you know when it happens <laughs> to see what that's going to be like. But then we have a lake of fire. And this, this again, has... Jesus spoke of fire, of judgment when he was teaching and ministering on the earth. Uh, this is a serious deal. Satan was... The two beasts have already been thrown there. And now Satan is finally thrown and he joins up with the two beasts. And this is a, I I think, a continuous and constant torment under God's judgment. And it is forever and ever. That should cause us to say we don't want anybody to face that. Because in the, the, final cha- the final paragraph of the chapter, we see that Jesus is the judge. He judges all things. And I think what's happening here, uh, now this is the seventh throne room vision of Revelation that John received. And in that seven representing completion, it's the completion of God's preservation of, of his son's reign. Because the lamb is on all the thrones in the book. The lamb who who, standing as if slain. I just love that. Try to think about that. And if you think about a thousand years, you have ten, number of completion too. We have ten fingers, ten toes. When one's missing, it looks odd because it's not complete. And so if you look at a thousand years, ten times ten times ten. So triplets of ten, God's saying a really long time, I got it all. But here, this, this image is so glorious that the earth and sky flee out of Jesus' presence because they are unworthy. Look, the earth and sky don't have sin. Sinners flee, but Jesus is coming with such power and glory and might that even the earth and sky is like, peace out, see you later, I can't be around this. That's how glorious it is. Jesus is. And I believe what is being described here is the same exact image that Jesus gave us in Matthew 25 of the the great white throne judgment when he says, it's Matthew 25:31 to 46, when the son of man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And they will, he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those who are on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty, and give you drink. And when did we see a stranger, and see you a stranger, and welcome you? Or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see the sick, and you sick in prison, and visit you? The king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers, you did it to me. Remember when uh, Jesus appears to Paul on the Damas- Damascus road, and he said, "Paul, Paul, stop persecuting." Me. Paul was, he was persecuting Christians and rounding them up, putting them in jail. Jesus is with, that's why he says, one of these brothers, my brothers. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed. Into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, as you, did, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Then these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I think this is a commentary of what we see, what John saw at the end of chapter 20 in Revelation. But we see books, Opened. And this is the deeds that Jesus goes through. With the sheep, he says, your deeds demonstrate that you had my mark on you. You had my character on you. But to the the goats, the ones on his left, he said, your deeds show that you had the mark of the beast. The character of, of your father, the devil. But he will open these books. Each of us has a book. It's our life in words, and it's also our sin in detail. Got big books. Mine's a big book. But for the believer, this is a moment to anticipate, not fear. Why do you say? Because as God opens that book, And he looks at the deeds of our lives. Every deed that was in glorious uh, image of Christ in his ministry and who he is on the earth. Every one of those deeds, I think, jumps off the page and God says, yes, well done. But when we get to the ones that have when we were faithless, we didn't believe the Lord. Or we sinned. We were proud. or We lied. We came short. See, what happens is that our sin doesn't leap off the page because he shows us, kind of dips, tips the book to us. And over all of those sins is a big red mark. And we notice that it's not the mark of a red pen from an English teacher saying, do better. It's a mark of blood. Because Jesus' blood covers all of that sin. Then it leaps off the page and we celebrate and we celebrate all that Jesus did to overcome every, to pay for every one of our deeds. Every mark that was there that the devil himself wants to remind us of to keep us in shame. But remember, the ones who reign with him are unashamed. First Corinthians 4 or 5 is an incredible thing to think about. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Got a little fear there. Don't have to fear. Jesus' blood covers the sins. Then listen. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. God will take... To, he will then say to us, not just well done, and, Another translation says he will, each man will receive his praise from God. Now, we immediately disqualify ourselves from that. Like, there's no way, like maybe like three things God can (laughs) praise me for in my life. No, it's going to be more than our bad deeds. Because that's how God looks at us. It will be more. We want to be obedient. We don't want to be jerks in the Christian life. We want to display God's glory and his light, the light of Christ. We want to do that. But isn't it amazing that, G, that because of Jesus' pen, payment for the penalty of our sins, God then turns to us and says, now let me take a moment to tell you how, how well you did on the earth in your life. Wow. Wow. If we can grab a hold of that concept now, I think we will live lighter, we will live more joyful, and we will understand our identity in Christ a bit more. So those are the books that come out, but there is one book that is the book of all books. It is the book of life. Even better, this our. Our scripture is a book of life. But this is a book that God keeps to himself. And this is no Santa Claus book. Marking off who's naughty and nice. This is God's book that he said. And he he wrote in before the foundations of the world. And he said, here are my redeemed. he writes our names in it. This list is the redeemed. The book of life. Those who Jesus has died for. Maybe it's it's got our earthly name it's got another name that he gives us I don't know but man we want we want to preach the gospel with everything that we are and share the gospel with everything we are because we want to find out whose name is in the book of life who will turn to God in passionate pursuit of him and repentance and salvation so what do we do now what, how do we respond to this? Do we focus on 1,000 years? I think we focus on what Jesus tried to understand and, and put the emphasis when he gave his disciples Matthew, uh, the, the story of the throne judgment Matthew 25. And this is a reference this in uh, uh, Philippians 2.15. Serve the purpose of Jesus in this crooked generation. Every generation is crooked, but serve. That's the mark of Christ. Serve. So look for and serve the least of these. So when we come and think of the millennial reign of Christ, however it's going to pan out, we all agree there, it will pan out exactly like God wants. And there's not going to be, like if the premillennials are right, they're not going to be high-fiving one another while the on mills and post mills are like, man, I thought I had something. That's not going to happen. We're going to see Jesus face to face, and we're going to love it. And then we'll understand, like, oh, that's what he meant. Okay, I got it now. He will reveal that. But what do we do today? We serve the least of these. We show mercy, and we love people into the kingdom. We love them into the family of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that even in the midst of... uh, Confusing and mind-bending concepts in your word. God, you you, you give us, you still give us enough to encourage us. You give us what we need because you want us to be encouraged in our life with you. And God, I thank you that we have courage today to live for you. And I pray that would have exponential effect as we seek to glory uh, spread and and uh, dwell in your glory every day of our lives so lord i pray that we would be more empowered as your priests those who are near you may we feel your nearness may we feel your presence and then go and serve people and share that presence with others and god that that day when we stand before you will be surprised really that When I did that, that mattered to you, God? Yes. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us faith to walk in your ways. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's remember as we recite our commission together that our commission to go to make disciples of the nations is to serve them. Serve. Give a cup of cold water. Jesus said that you give a cup of cold water in my name. I'm, I'm, I'm exalted. So let's remind ourselves when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. God bless you.